Hello everyone, my name is Jason Harwood, CEO of LifeWealth, and welcome to LifeWealth's new podcast series, Pivot. We'll be sharing the stories of people who've chosen to make significant changes in their lives, and this series will sit alongside our ongoing economic and market updates with James Vandaloo. We feel very fortunate to have Simon Costa join us to share the story of his pivot for this first episode. Simon Costa in 2016 was awarded the Pride of Australia Medal for his services to support the disadvantaged overseas and within Australian society. In 2018, he was nominated for the Australian of the Year Award. And in 2019, Simon was appointed as an Officer of the Order of Australia for his distinguished service to business and humanity. Simon was formerly the Managing Director of Costa Group when it was one of Australia's largest family-owned businesses. And today, it has a market capitalization of more than $1.3 billion. Simon's pivot was to commence working with the United Nations World Food Program and use his skills to find sustainable solutions to the problem of food loss and its devastating effect. Simon's humanitarian work continues today with the work in his own enterprise, Inspiring Leader, and as a board member of the One Heart Foundation and its mission to create positive futures for orphaned and abandoned children living in abject poverty across Africa. Please enjoy Simon's story. Hi, Simon. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome, Jason. And I'm very mindful of just how busy you are most of the time, but particularly at the moment with the uh, One Heart uh, Foundation Gala Ball. That sounds like it's keeping you very busy in uh, readiness. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, so we'll talk about that a little bit later on because I know that's just such a something that's you know very close to your heart and you're working so hard on it at the moment. Um, but Simon, given the, the the theme of this podcast series is what's called pivot and it's about people making the decision to to make major changes in their life and, and your story has always struck me in the time that we've been talking and you know reading a little bit more about you that you are just a prime example of someone who's made a pivot in their life so um, perhaps as a starting point to understand the pivot we'll go back to where you started and almost where you pivoted from does that sound okay with you certainly fantastic so so simon uh, you were the managing director of Costa Group up until 2012, I believe? 11. 2011, okay. Um, so many people would know of the Costa Group, but maybe not everybody does. So the Costa Group, uh, I think, is, uh, you know, it's a listed company now. I think it's got a market capitalization of $1.3 billion or $1.4 billion or something like that. Um, but it comes from, well, let's call it humble beginnings. It was a retail fruit shop in Geelong, I believe, as a starting point. Correct. Um, our family had uh, a history of, of working in the, the fruit and vegetable industry. And when, when we first uh, immigrated to Australia in the late 1800s, mm -hmm. there, was, uh, there was a fruit shop in Geelong and then there was um, different family members at different times working in there. And then um, our... Well, my grandmother and grandfather started their own fruit shop uh, in Moorable Street, and then their children worked in it, which was my father and my uncles. And then uh, that generation then um, broadened out from retailing into wholesaling. Um, and then the gener as the, the, the generation of my, my father and uncles, um, as they became more and more um, uh, focused on the wholesaling, the retail side um, fell away, mm. and then we went from wholesaling into becoming uh, the primary producers as well. 
But, but what an amazing story. So emigrated to Australia, started a retail fruit shop in Geelong. That must have been running for 60, 70, 80 years or something like that, I, I would think. Yeah, 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 a long time, yeah. So uh, I'm not sure exactly the year, the, the Covent Garden was, the, was our family one when that, I think it was 1888, but yeah, right. uh, you know, it started a long time ago. Yeah, and then your dad Adrian, your uncle Frank, basically made the call in the 60s that were, they were gonna go into wholesale. Yeah, there yeah. just wasn't, you know, there wasn't enough business in Geelong and they saw an opportunity to supply the other retailers. Uh, and then at the time, the supermarkets were starting to open up. So your, your Coles and, yep. and Safeways at the time in Victoria were starting to, you know, become more and more um, uh, prevalent in, in, the, in the different towns. So they had the opportunity to supply the supermarkets and then from there, the business really, really grew. I'm always, and this isn't necessarily what we were going to talk about today, but I'm always, I love those stories about, you know, was that potentially your dad and your uncle, you know, sitting around a table, maybe having a beer or just having a chat and sort of saying to each other, should we think about moving into wholesale? Yeah. And then you go from that simple conversation, perhaps one night to, you know, one of, if not the largest family owned business in the country. Yeah, no, it, it, it just was the opportunity. My mm. father was the more outgoing between, uh, his name was Adrian, so Adrian and Frank. Frank was very much, um, you know, the, the, the administrator, administrator the, um, the numbers guy, and my father was more the outgoing front guy. The, the, so he was the one that was, you know, hungry to get to, to the big wholesale market in Melbourne and, mm. and buy better than the people that were supplying them. And then in turn, there was a, an opportunity to you know, use those skills to buy better and get more margin and then still outsell the, comp the competitors. So, you know, there was just uh, the ambition, I think, that the, the young guys to, you know, just to do it bigger and better. Yeah, that's great. And, and how old would they have been roughly then? Oh, they're in their early 20s. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that is really they're amazing. just fearless. Yeah. And then they had the opportunity to buy out a, um, a competitor in Geelong. And so... You know, they, they went to, you know, they totally over, over uh, stretched their yep. abilities and, and several times, you know, they, they should have fallen over, they, they should have gone under, but they somehow through, you know, whether it's borrowing from family members or whether it was just, you know, having the, uh, the ability to convince people that they'll pay a bit later, but they managed to survive going under on multiple occasions and, you know, they ended up yeah, succeeding. That's amazing. Simon, before you and I came on to record this podcast, we talked about the fact that um, there's so much that we could talk about. We already had half an hour chatting before yeah. we came into the podcast. There's already five questions I want to ask you about what yeah. you just said. I feel like this could be like a 12-hour podcast. So uh, I, I won't ask you some of those follow-up questions there, but I will say that fearlessness of youth, it would be harder to make that decision at 50 to, to go so close to, to the brink, yeah, wouldn't it? It's, exactly. it's a decision you can make when you're in your 20s. Yeah, and it, again, it, it's the adrenaline that they had and their mm. ability to convince whether it was the bank manager or whether it was their parents or whoever, just to stump up the initial money. And then you've got any number of people saying you're crazy. Mm. You know, you're trying to swallow something that's so much bigger than what you are today, you, you won't be able to do it. But you know, it's, I, I always listened with admiration at, at just how fearless they were. Yeah, that's, that, is a, that is a fantastic story. 
Um, so Simon, you, uh, I think I'm right in saying, joined the family business in the early 90s, 92 or something yeah, like that. Yeah, T- tell, yeah. tell us about your time there. In the early days? Yeah, in the early days. Well, in the early days, I, I think I was hoodwinked into actually joining the family business. I, I had aspirations um, to stay in the fashion industry. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love fashion and, uh, and I was enjoying um, working in fashion in Australia and then also in Italy. Mm-hmm. And when I was asked by the, the family members, the, the senior family members to join the family business. We had a, a policy at the time that family members must work for a minimum of five years outside of the right. business um, before they're allowed to join the business. And that just stopped the next generation just drifting into the business yeah, and sure. assuming. So I had chosen to work in the fashion industry and then I was asked after the five years to join the business and I wasn't really keen on doing it, but they managed to convince me to come back based upon, at that stage, we had a furniture business. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the acquisitions we made had a, a small furniture business, and, and so they said to me, well, furniture, fashion, they're, they're similar. You can come back and, and why don't you, you know, look, you know, take over the furniture part. So on that pretense, I came back from uh, Italy, and then on the very first morning, Frank sat me down and he said, well, for you to ever be anything in this organisation, you've got to be in the core part yep. of the business. So I never spent a minute in the furniture business. I went straight over into the uh, into the, the fruit and veg business. Looking back now, I mean, you, so for people listening, you've got a smile on your face, yeah. sort of recounting that. What do you think about that? Looking back now, like that first morning when he said to you, "Well, you know, you're not going into the furniture business." What do you think about that? Looking back now, I just think it's you look back and you can clearly see like the theme of this this talk is about you know the pivoting and i think well there was a pivot earlier on i had an aspiration of playing professional sport Mm. and then i had a a terrible injury and uh you know i I was clinically um died at one stage from this accident and which meant that i could never play physical sport again so that sent me down a path of fashion and then if if the family hadn't have brought me back from the fashion into um, the, the business, then that would never have allowed me to, to set you know, the path that my life's now taken. And so there's, there's these pivots that happen. Some of them are by your own doing, others mm. are, are often thrust upon you. But I look now and I just say, well, you can just see how that, that pathway worked. And it worked. And, and at the time, I, I give them credit. They had the wisdom to know where I'd be best placed mm. in the business. They had the um, also the wisdom to make sure that we didn't have nepotism in in the business. They made sure that we we were very clear from the very first day. There is no advantage. In fact, Frank would actually say there was a disadvantage. I will have a, that you'll be discriminated against for being a family member. So. It just made it that much harder, you know, to perform, and I think that just really builds um, a strength and a determination you might not have had. Mm. And the wisdom that you had was to listen. Well, again, sometimes you think you're listening. Other times you, you had to get knocked over the head a few times, and mm. uh, I think there's a, there's an arrogance of youth at times, and uh, I've got no doubt, you know, and it wasn't just the family members. There was some senior business managers yep. who thought enough of me to to really sit me on my backside a couple of times. We always need that in our lives, don't we? We need someone to have that hard conversation with us. Yeah. Someone, I might just pick up something you talked about there. Um, you talked about the, the accident you had when I think you were at school. Yeah. 
what, what were you playing at the time? What was the sport you were playing at the time? So that was Australian rules. Yeah, so, okay. yeah, we were a um, schoolboys team preparing for um, the year ahead and we were playing a men's team. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I came off the worst for wear after an impact with one of the, the men. Yeah, right. So they had a fractured skull and then a lot of internal hemorrhaging in the, in the brain. So, yeah, I... Long story short, I, I did clinically die and they managed to, uh, to save me. Uh, I almost don't know what to say about that, but, but I am going to say this. Um, you know, in, in preparing to chat to you, uh, I, I came across something. Uh, and, you know, we would have a lot of, we have a lot of clients with professional footballers and things like that. Um, and, and I know they listen to the podcast. You know, when you talk about Assumption College, which is where you went to school, you know, you, the mind immediately goes to great footballers. And, you know, your, your hope was going to be that you're going to be a professional athlete, a professional footballer. And my understanding is you were, you were very talented. It is amazing to think that uh, the Assumption College Hall of Excellence only has 20 inductees in it. And there's only two or three footballers, I think. So I was really surprised by that, right. first of all. But you were one of the 20 inductees into the Assumption College Hall of Excellence when you were 14 years old, if you ever thought about being in the Assumption College Hall of Excellence, I would think you thought that was going to be because you were a good footballer. <laughs> that would have been my dream. Absolutely. Um, so I, was, I, I, I loved that that was something that, um, yeah. that you were inducted in there, but for not your dream. Yeah. But I also would like to qualify. That was my aspiration. Sure. <laughs> it was not necessarily likely. I, I wasn't even the, the best of the group I went through. So sure. for me to have ever had a professional career is highly unlikely. Yeah, sure. But, you know, we can always, uh, we can yeah. always dream. Um, Simon, so you joined the family business in 92. Um, uh, my understanding is you took over as managing director in 2004 after uh, being COO yeah. and, and things like that. You took over from Frank, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So Frank, I would imagine, was larger than life in that business for all the big decisions that have been made, what we talked about in the 60s, um, got you into the business, sat you down a number of times along the way. How were you feeling at the time you took over? Were you, but in fact, how were you feeling at the time you took over, especially because you were taking over from Frank? Well, it wasn't, um, it wasn't an overnight sort of realisation. You know, Frank, to his credit, had spent a number of years. Um, you know, he invested a lot in me, a lot of the preparation. He had good people around me. And he'd made it very clear early on that that was his, you know, his desire. That, uh, you know, so particularly um, in 2001 when he asked me to sit across all of the, the operations of the businesses, um, that's when he, he was made it clear that you, this is not just something you're going to, you're not just going to get. It's not a walk-up start. And his expectations were, were very high around what he needed me to do. Not so much in the, in the commercial acumen side, more around behaviours. Frank was all around the way people are treated. And then um, he was extraordinary in terms of his ability to still deliver a strong message, mm. but always make sure that the individual was respected. And so as our business grew, you know, you, you move from 1,000 to 3,000 to 8,000, 10,000. As the, the numbers grew, the ability for people in the business to work closely with Frank and observe his behaviours became less and less because the more distant the operations, the more acquisitions. And, the, you know, it, you go from the early days where the family behaviour around the Sunday lunch 
um, and when you get a, a clip over the year for certain misbehaviours, that goes into the small business environment and then it gets diluted as it gets yeah, larger sure. and larger, the yep. circle. So by the time I was in a senior management role, the, the scale of the business and the breadth of uh, you know, geographically, we tried to come up with a way of how could we set a, a base standard of behaviour through the business. And we developed, um, we didn't invent, but we certainly Australianised a, um, a concept called character first. Mm. Back in a time before, sports clubs and businesses were even using the word character. Mm. You know, we, we made a decision that every area of the business, every month for an hour, would stop for, an, for that full hour and do nothing but talk about a particular character quality for that month. And then that just put the spotlight squarely on all the management. You can't be up there talking about certain behaviours and then acting differently. Mm. Um, and so it meant that we set a standard of behaviour across the entire organisation. It was basically reflecting what Frank's values were and how he expected everyone around him to, to behave. And it was remarkable. You know, whereas people would say, so help me understand this. You, you have 10,000 dead hours a month where people just sit around and talk. I said, well, that's one way of looking at it. We looked at it as a massive investment and that was by far, I, I, I give more um, credibility to that than any other initiative we took that helped the business grow to the, the scale that it did. And then when we achieve that scale, to then be able to continue to, to deliver at a high standard. Was that, that character first, then um, Frank then took it into the football club and had great success in terms of the way in which um, you know, players were recruited in and the selection between you know, equally talented people, but how do you get the right culture in the sporting club? And then we helped a number of other businesses in very different industries. So that to me was um, so clearly evidenced in the, in the individuals that were, I was um, succeeding. Um, but it just allowed me to also attract a very high level of um, quality people. Yeah, I, look, as you were saying that, I mean, and we've talked about this before, just how much that resonates for me, that that people first, and if we get that right, everything else will get looked after. Yeah. Um, and just finding good people and giving them a home and giving them comfort and giving them confidence that they, yeah. they, they, they find a place where, where they belong. Um, but it certainly struck me as you were talking about Frank and, and all of that, even before you started talking about Geelong Football Club, you could hear that about yeah. everything you know about Geelong Football Club. So it's really great to see that sort of top-down oh, yeah. leadership. That, that, uh, the, that just the way it worked in the business environment applies in any environment where people are involved. Mm. And uh, yeah, sporting club's no different. You've got a lot of super talented young people. They've got a lot of money. They've got a lot of time. You know, it's just, it's, I mean, it's great in theory, but I always smile when I walk into a, an organisation that has those nice posters up, mm -hmm. you know, the poster about, you know, how we do things and how we, and I often wonder if you, if you came in overnight, took those posters down and put some other posters up and people would, would it make any difference? Mm. Because the theory is not going to make, you know, what made a difference for us was the fact that everybody knew the investment we were making in it and we challenged people to speak up if they observed, you know, it's like most of us as managers, we're paid to identify people doing the wrong thing mm. and critique them. 
this whole program was around finding people doing the right thing and recognize them. And so I, I just apply the simple logic of what inspires me, what motivates me. Mm. Um, and if it does that to me, it's a fair chance it's going to be the same for everyone else. So yeah. it's pretty simple. Mm. In in yeah in, in in its meaning, but it's very difficult to execute. Pretty simple, but and, and we're starting to see more of it in uh, you know in the two thousand and twenties. But it goes against almost all the management thinking of the sixties, seventies, eighties, and you know you start to see a little bit of it coming in in the nineties. But it, it, I think it's where real success comes from now. So it's you know so wonderful to hear that it, uh, Costa Group was doing it so long ago. But it's just even more important now because there's such a shortage of talent mm. that people have so many options. You know, two or three decades ago, they didn't have the options. And so now you look at the, the average CV and people jump around a lot more to different jobs. So how do you attract them? And most importantly, how do you retain them? And again, if it's just about the remuneration, it's, uh, yeah, it's a pretty it's competitive. It's yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I read this quote from, from that time. You, you did an interview from uh, 2008. So it really talks about the character first initiative you've done in, you did in the years prior to that. You've but done I, your research. I have. Uh, but I really like this for a couple of reasons because um, of what you just talked about. Um, for me, it, it's a quote that I can very much hear coming from you. Um, but also with what we're going to talk about soon, I can see that in what we're going to talk about soon as well once you, you make the pivot, if you like. So this is a quote from you in 2008 about the Character First Initiative. By getting closer to our people and genuinely placing the welfare and development of our people ahead of profit, we've managed to harness the collective endeavour and talent of our workforce to consistently achieve all objectives set regardless of the obstacles confronted. So starting from building a great foundation of your people and then getting the result rather than we have to get the result, what do we need to get our people to yeah. do? I, I, that, that, you know, as I said before, really resonated with me. Nice. Mm, it's very good. Good research. Okay, so um, that brings us to, well, in fact, let, let, let's go a different way. So, so, so you're at Costa Group. Um, I, by the sounds of it, you would have been enjoying your time there. I mean, you'd, you'd been there for so long and you were doing such great things. The company was continuing to grow. But you started to think a little bit differently about, um, I don't know, you started to think a little bit differently. So at some stage, you started considering what you may well do in the future. Yeah, I, throughout the, particularly the, two, the early 2000s, I was, each year I was picking some organisation and trying to get behind it using my network or using my ability to, um, to attract support to, you know, uh, you know I climbed Kilimanjaro, but instead of doing it for the enjoyment, you know, I, I, I rallied a whole lot of people around it and we raised three or $400,000. And then I decided, well, I'll, I'm not a bike rider, but I'll, I'll do something that sounds hard. I'll, I'll ride my bike along the spine of the Pyrenees in, in Europe, never knowing how hard it would be, but at the same time raised a lot of money yeah, to do it. So I was constantly thinking about... Um, more needy causes and individuals than uh, than you know. Thankfully, my family we were very fortunate that that. Uh, and one of the catalysts is that um, uh, one of my uncles, uh, a champion guy, Kevin Costa. He he unfortunately had three boys, and two of them were were severely uh, afflicted with uh, debilitating diseases. Oh, right. And so, I wanted to do something to 
raise money for research. Um, and so that was the, so I was, I was trying to, in amongst being extremely busy at work, look for ways of, of giving back. And it was more, there was, I was meeting as I became more and more senior, I was meeting with more and more people and, you know, they were off the charts successful in everything that society deems to be, you know, the success, but mainly around the material scorecard. And, and I was constantly thinking about, well, you know, is, is that what it's all about? You know, just trying to be you know, able to compete with those people in terms of, of, uh, of what the, the mm. bank account looks like or the, the, the car you drive. And I remember once one of the real tipping points for me was just a really simple, just a nothing event. I was walking through the airport. I passed a bookshop and there was a, a, a row of books there. I looked at the titles and just kept walking and then I stopped and turned back. And it was just a simple title, three words, four words, how much is enough? I thought, wow, how much is enough? Like at a young age, I had been you know, fortunate to achieve you know, a level of success that allowed our family to live very well and our children go to, you know, to the best schools. And, and I was thinking, yeah, I'm in my early 40s, you know, what's it gonna look like in my 50s and my 60s? Um, and this book was really sort of challenging that mindset about the only goal being more. It's more questioning around, well, how much is enough? And I think if you could ask 50 people that question, you have 50 different answers. Absolutely. You know, for you, Jason, it might be 12 million. Mm. For Charlie down the street, it might be 17 million, but mm. it's a number um, that's just a, a subjective opinion. And so I began to think, well, how much is enough for me? And if, if I believe I'm at a point where I have that, and I have the ability to help others, why don't I try and you know, share a bit of my, the talents I've been blessed with with others in a way that I don't get anything in return, but I can help them you know, have an impact mm. positively on their lives. So I began looking for ways that I could give more of my time and my talents where I got nothing back. Mm. Um, and that's where I, I started to, I think I was, it's like you know, it's, you know, the example if you, you might start thinking about buying a certain car and all of a sudden you see that car getting around everywhere. I started to come across, um, you know, I remember there's this one, one quote by Mother Teresa, I won't get it exactly right here, but it was basically saying um, at the end of your life what really mattered, it won't be the diplomas you've earned, it won't be the, the great things you've done and it won't be the assets that you have that will determine you know, whether you've lived a, a successful life. It'll be the investment you've made in other people's lives. Mm. And I remember thinking to myself, well, I've got a pretty good scorecard at this stage in terms of the material things, um, but in terms of investing in other lives, I've got a really poor scorecard because it's, I'm sitting in judgment of other people, but I'm doing exactly the same thing. Everything about what I was doing is more, more, more. You know, I'll be happy when I get that holiday house. I'll be happy when we acquire that other business. It was all of happiness was a future state. And so that's where in discussion with my family, I said, just for six months, I'm going to step away and work on, you know, I, I never dreamed that I was exiting corporate world. I just thought for, for six months, I'll go and dedicate myself fully to helping others. Um, and uh, we'll see what happens. And then I thought I'd just, I'll just cycle back and, uh, and get on with what I was doing. And uh, that started a whole new journey. 
So uh, you saw me across the table smile when you said just for six months. Uh, how long did it end up being? Oh, the, so I ended up being with the UN for nearly eight years. Mm. Um, so long story involved there in terms of how difficult it was to join the UN. But once I actually had a role with the UN um, and moved to several locations, um, and it was a couple of uh, breaks along the way, but overall, the, so I never cycled back to um, Australian <laughs> corporate world uh, mm. again until yeah, 2019. Um, and for much of that time, my family was living here on their own, uh, my wife and two daughters, and uh, and it was so it was equally tough on them as mm. it was for me in some of the challenging areas that I was working. Yeah, I, w without a doubt. So, so I might stay on that for a second. So you, you made the decision that you, you were going to pursue this and you were going to make this pivot. You were, you were going to, um, uh, I, I've heard you say a number of times, you were, you were going to um, pursue significance rather than pursue success. I, I, I've heard that many times from you and, and I love that. Well, look, sorry, just on that one, that was not a phrase that I came up with. There was another one that I read and maybe if I had read it two years earlier, it wouldn't have made an impact sure, yeah. at the time that I read it I really there's the statement about pursuing significance as opposed to pursuing success mm. really led me to drill down to what is significance versus what is success and probably in the most simplistic way that I understood it at the time was success is everything about what I get out of something significance is what others get out of it mm. and and that's where I, it really the thought in my mind as I said it wasn't about you know you know selling up everything and and just going to a monastery somewhere it was it was more about how can I use my talents to yeah impact on other lives and and that's where the next start, part of the journey you really began to see how much impact you can have mm. And that's why I'm, I'm mindful of saying um, I did something extraordinary. Mm. I, I was in a fortunate position where I had the ability to do it and I had the family support and I had the financial um, you know, foundation to be able to step away and do it. I'm sure many others would do the same if they could. And a lot of people tend to think it's something they'll do at their end of their career for obvious reasons. Of course. So I, um, I'm really careful to never frame it in such a way as to say, I did something mm. that others, why aren't you doing it sort of thing? It's just, I tell my story and then when people ask in terms of what they could do, I say, well, think of it more around your community. What can you do in terms of sharing your time or your talent? Not necessarily money. We always assume being generous means giving money. Mm. Um, there's a lot of other things you can do to share particularly with mentoring young ones or, or just helping in the community. So I'm jumping around a bit, but the point was at the time that pursuit of success was all consuming for me. And now this whole novel idea of pursuing significance. And even now, um, and this latest um, stage in what I'm doing, and people are constantly saying, I don't get it. How can you do that for nothing? Mm. And again, the nothing is in reference to the measurement we seem to have is that an action deserves a financial return. A number. Yep. And so I try and explain the, the, the satisfaction and the, the joy I get out of 
you know, that investment in others and just seeing how they get, you know, uh, move forward and, and their, their situation improves. Mm. The thing that I, I keep coming back to is in that period of time where you were thinking about making the decision to make this pivot, to make this change. The extraordinary thing for me in that as, as an objective observer sort of looking in, I think it takes real courage to make that decision at that time. When, when the world and society and your peers and, and everyone expects you to continue going a certain way because that's how it works, yeah. to have the courage to make the decision to say, no, I want to do something different, that's the thing that I'm really struck by. And, and I wanted to ask you a question. I asked you earlier on about um, becoming managing director and how did you feel when you, when you were first sort of, you know, first day in the job almost. How were you feeling, if you can remember, having made this decision that you were going to make a change and then thinking about having those conversations with your nearest and dearest, you know, family, friends, um, well, Frank, for example, well, how did funny. it feel? It's not... Because there was no set plan mm. to leave and go for a decade, that would have been a tough decision to either make or to <laughs> sure. share. Yep. It was a very much a short-term thing. Mm. For this, will you support me? So in each of the different environments, will you support me in taking a short-term, do this, and this is what I perceive I'll do, mm. and then I'm going to cycle back, and then life goes, it goes on. on yeah. um, it was only the courage... You see, it wasn't even courage. There was that sense of adventure. Mm. And it was like, giddy up. We're going to do something exciting. And, and it's almost instead of taking four weeks leave, we're going to take 26 weeks leave and do something. So it's, yeah, if I had have known at the time that I would never have returned back to corporate world, um, that might have been a very brave decision. Yeah, sure. But so it was just a lot of it was out of ignorance and moving forward. And then... Even along the way, as the opportunities opened up for me to have more impact than I could ever have dreamed in a lot of lives, that wasn't so much courage. That was almost like, you know, um, again, it was just a sense of, it was a thrill to say, well, I'm in a position that I can help Mm. and I'm not sort of having to wrestle with, we've run out of money at home or our kids have to get pulled out of the school because they can't. And, you know, everything seemed to be in order, which allowed me to do that. So in so many ways, I was in a very fortunate position Mm. that I could continue on that path. um, And again, in a selfish way, get all the, um, the joy and the satisfaction out of being part of something that was changing lives. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's fantastic. And whenever I hear you talk about it, you know, I can you sense the joy of what you're able to to achieve and the people you're able to help. So, well, look, so I was just saying, there's not many times. Yeah, you know, the rare occasion we might be in a situation where you something happens, an accident happens around you, and you might be able to save a life, and that doesn't happen very often to no. many people. And certainly, not many of us get in a position where we can save tens, hundreds tens of thousands of lives. Mm. And so that's what I'm sort of saying. There's a it's very to appreciate different... that, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. And you, you know that you're now part of a group that has changed hundreds of thousands of lives um, that, again, there's an enormous sense of satisfaction that the 
all the investments. I had some incredible mentors along the way, and the investments they made in me um, they have now resulted in a whole lot of, you know, that whole story about, you know, we're, we're all sitting under the shade of a tree of someone that someone planted the tree 50 years ago. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and I can only do this because of the, um, the, the setup that the family al- uh, allowed around me and then the fantastic family life I had, you know, to support it. That, that is wonderful. And to hear you say like that is just so wonderful because... You're right, that, that enabled you to do what you've been able to do, which is plant more trees for more yeah. people to sit under 50 years from now, which is, which is really great to think about that continuum. Yeah, and I struggle when, when people will give awards around innovation or, or you know, and you think, hang on, I, I didn't invent anything. Hmm. Not a single thing can I claim was a, an original idea that if I hadn't existed, that idea wouldn't exist. Mm. No, all it had was I had an ability to look at work done by others in other areas and successfully done and then apply it in regions where nobody had ever brought that education to them. And so that's what I'm saying. I, I see myself, I've been more of a conduit of, uh, of bringing you know, ideas that, uh, that weren't there. And it all, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping forward, but reflecting back on the questions you're asking around, it was the foundation that I had from the family, the foundation from the business, the foundation from the peers um, that allowed me to then have a level of success in the developing region. Yeah, it's actually, it's, it's, it's really, as I said, to, to get that sense of continuum is, is, is really lovely. Um, so, so you make this decision, six months, um, you start having conversations with the UN broadly, I think, before before yeah. moving to the UN um, uh, World Food Program. Uh, yeah. Tell us about those conversations. Oh, they were difficult. It was. It didn't matter which angle I tried to go down, or which I just couldn't get in. I just mm. couldn't crack even an opportunity to speak to anyone. Which is amazing to think of with the CV, if you like, that you bring to the table. You would assume you just walk in, show your CV, and they say, But the system was such that uh, you you couldn't even talk to a HR officer. You had to go online, and and you just get, yeah, I just wasn't getting anywhere. And it was only through my business network I spoke to someone in America who spoke to someone in Europe who knew a director within the UN. And fundamentally, the message was, help me understand this. You've got a, a young guy that's running a multi-billion dollar organization who's offering his time for free and you can't find a role. <laughs> anyway, that opened it up and we were able to make a, a start. So we, we chose the World Food Program simply because it's the largest of all the humanitarian um, organizations in the world. And that is the logistics hub of um, the UN. Mm. And so because I've got a logistics supply chain background, I thought that's somewhere that I could add, add some value. All right, so let's talk about adding value. I mean, it, I guess it's the kind of thing we could spend hours talking about, you know, what was the problem, you know, what, what were you able to, um, you know, find some, some solutions to. Can, can you give us a sense of the scale of the problem that you faced or, or that you know, was being faced by the, uh, Africa at the time? Well, I mean, one of the, the things that impressed me very early upon entering the UN was just the level of um, 
information that was available. Mm. Just the brilliant minds around the world, it didn't matter what field they were in, um, and the studies that had been done. So whether it was within the, um, the UN or the World Bank or, or some of these large um, not-for-profits, the volume of information is astounding. And so in the early months, I was trying, because my, my focus was around, I know that the World Food Program, they do an incredible job at getting supplies to when there's emergencies and, and real disasters, whether it's um, man-made or, or, or not. So I initially was looking at, at how can I make them more efficient logistically by road, by sea, by air, when you've got to move those emergency supplies. And I was spending time in some of these um, areas of Africa where they were, they were looking at how we could be more efficient. Mm. But I would go to bed at night thinking around that whole yeah, that, um, question that you might have heard before, is it more efficient to have a good fence at the top of a cliff where people are falling off or a really efficient ambulance service at the bottom of the cliff mm. collecting the bodies? Mm. And I felt we were doing a wonderful job at the bottom of the cliff, you know, getting the, the aid and the supplies to these people. Yeah. No criticism at all. But who's actually studying the cause, why these people are, you know, why are they moving from one region to another region? Why, why is this you know, the civil unrest? What's the cause of a lot of these issues? And so I began trying to study the reasons why you know, the fence was needed at the top of the mm. cliff and how, what that fence would actually look like. And so on the topic of food insecurity and poverty, I began reading a lot of reports that were talking about um, the volume of food every year that is grown in that region and never consumed. And what most people, myself included, before I had spent any time in Africa, I had the perception that Africa is a very dry and barren yes. place. Yep. And so I imagined that they had an issue with getting good land or mm -hmm. good water supply, or whatever, or, um, to, to grow the crops. And then I started coming across these reports. So visually, I was on the ground over there seeing some really lush areas. I saw some very good soil quality. I saw good rainfalls. And then I was reading reports. And some of them, I, there's no way you could get your head around this. I'll try and share it with you. But there's this one report I read, and I'll never forget the day I read it. It was, a, a, it was an update of a previous report that was written, and it was saying that Across these group of countries called Sub-Saharan Africa, there is every year 1.4 billion tonne of food is grown and never consumed. And like I've, I've had a lot to do with moving pallets of food in my career and I, I know what a t one tonne of food looks mm. like. It's a pallet, yay high, yay wide, that's a tonne. So I could think of a million of those tons or think of a million one-ton vans. That's a lot. Yes. Now try and think of 1.4 billion ton year after year after year being grown and never eaten. And I was trying to think, in this, and there's other reports that say in that same region there's 10, 20, 30 million people severely malnourished. Mm. It's not like there's a, a logistical problem where on this side of the world there's an excess of food yeah, sure. and on this side of the world there's a shortage how do you bring the food to the, where it's needed? In the exact region where there's millions suffering and dying from hunger, 
and associated poverty issues, you've got billion tonne of food is coming out of the ground. And whereas in Australia and America and Canada, we have food waste. Yes. So it's food that comes in the supermarket, the restaurant, the family home, we throw it out. This is food loss. It never even gets to the market. And I'm just, I'm looking around saying, why isn't everyone yeah, exactly up in right. arms yeah. about this? Why isn't it, yeah. why am I just, I'm vibrating with anger, like how can this be? And then I found another report that was almost identical, but in a slightly different way. It was written in a different region, but there was just countless reports. And I'm saying, you know, I'm not an agricultural scientist. I'm not an entomologist. I'm not a biologist. I'm not a botanist. I'm none of these things that uh, these experts that have written these reports. But what I do have is an unbelievable level of detail in these reports that are saying exactly what's causing the food loss and what needs to be done pre-harvest, post-harvest. It was just all laid out there. And, and what there was just studies and studies and studies. And to make it crazy, I came across a report by the World Bank that was a study on all the studies. And I just thought, this is unbelievable. Was there any part of you, Simon, thinking, what am I getting wrong here? It's so obvious. It's laid out on the table in front of me, effectively. Am I missing something? But constantly. It's... I would be saying to people within the, the, the corporate headquarters of the UN saying, the answers are here. We know exactly what's the cause, and we've got a whole list of recommendations on what to do. Why is there no pilots? Why is there no one taking this and, and implementing it? And I had any number of people saying, Simon, stop. Look, you're only new to it. You, know, this, you, know, mm. you have to understand this is Africa. And it was almost like this reverse discrimination to say these guys are born there so they are not able to comprehend something that we've been doing for not only tens and decades. We've been doing for thousands of years. Mm. We worked out how to manage bumper crops yep. in, years, you know, in Egyptian times. Mm. You know, so... And that's what I'm saying. It's not like I was coming with any sort of revolutionary idea. I had so many examples of what we do pre and post harvest that the farmers in Africa are not doing simply because no one had brought the education to them. And so when I said that I was going to do some trials and I had people telling me, stop, you can't do that. And I would say, or what? <laughs> you know. And that was the beauty of being a volunteer. I didn't have to. Yeah, you know, they they weren't able. It was difficult. There's no they conflict didn't for you. You just want to solve no. the problem. Yeah. So I said, look, you know, you're not paying me, and you're also not funding this project. Yeah, you know, so I'm funding it, and so the costs. So we did a, a small trial in East Africa, a small trial in West Africa. Mm -hmm. We had unbelievable success, and I won't go into too much detail, but we scaled it up to we had f over four and a half thousand farms involved. And I remember at one stage, one of the directors, I, I went to um, one of the, the, the senior people at the UN with this wonderful report on the impact of the work. And I remember this individual saying, that's nice, but come and talk to me when you achieve scale. And I thought, how can you say that? Mm. There's, there's no examples of any small pilots with 50 farms. I've just done four and a half thousand. thousand. So that was really... The, uh, the little bit of a spike I needed to, to work a bit harder. Yeah, sure. So we went to over 16,000 farms, and at the end of it, there was a report that was um, co-authored by a group of really bright students from um, MIT in Boston. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally, um, 
the name of the report was called Eradicating the World's Biggest Solvable Problem. And their, their, um, the results that we recorded with those 16,000 farms demonstrated a 98% reduction in food loss. So if you then extrapolate that across 1.4 billion tonne, yes. the whole thing changes. Instead of the world saying, we need to teach these developing regions how to grow more, we need to create more arable land, we need more water, we need more land. No, you don't need any of that. There's only one problem to solve. Well, by far, the biggest problem is not them being able to grow, it's being able to preserve the crops that are already mm. grown. If you do nothing but just preserve what they already grow, we're already a billion tonne ahead. That's just that region. This is similar in Asia, South America. Yeah, sure. So yep. my argument was, instead of us just looking at, you know, how do we you know, spend more, mm. use more fossil fuels and natural resources to yep. grow more, that's yep. we've got a finite amount of land, mm. we've got a finite amount of natural resources, and yet we're just totally ignoring a massive, massive opportunity um, to, uh, to, to fix what I think are, are two of the most solvable problems in the world. Um, but it is amazing that effectively the MIT report confirms that very thought process you were having at the start when you're working through the reports and sort of looking at it going, the answer appears to be here. But that's the, that's the point. When we fast forward and several years later when we got to a much larger scale and we were receiving awards and, and recognition for the innovation and the impact, I found it very, very difficult to accept those um, acknowledgements because, you know, as, I, as I think I've said to you before, if I was Einstein and I had invented something, if I had brought to the UN ideas that the UN didn't know about, then for sure give me an award. But the bottom line was every single thing we were doing was known before and most of it was contained in the reports that had been written and I became convinced that the priority for, sadly, for many of the people that I was working with, the priority is to study the problem, not to solve the problem. Yep. And so it became more of a frustration than a sense of pride that if any one individual or one small group can come along and have that level of impact, something's wrong. Mm. When there's so much money and resources and, and the world gives such a you know, support to solving some of these things. And uh, I'm not saying there's an answer to every problem. Of course. Yep. But there are some problems which uh, we could be doing a lot more. Take the low-hanging fruit and solve them while we can, while we uh, try and deal with, yeah. the, with the larger ones. And we sit here and, you know, and, and life's pretty good here in a mm. nice sun-filled room in, in Melbourne. But when you're on the ground over there and you're seeing families dying you see people on the street dying of malnourishment mm. and then you're thinking in this exact same region there is such a vast excess of food grown than what's required now we talk about the impact on their stomach but the impact on the household finance that it might represent they're losing 50 percent of their yeah, crop absolutely. but it represents 100 percent of their income mm. So they have no money, nothing to sell, no money. So their ability for, for clothing, for f uh, food, for education, yeah. zero. Mm. So the minute we started to reduce their food losses, the first thing, and I was always surprised because uh, a really detailed survey was done by these MIT students basically saying from last season to next season, you've got, all, you've got this extra disposable income. 
what are you going to use it on? And I immediately thought they'd talk about things like clothes, you know, or something on their house or cars or something. Nearly some high 90% of the um, respondees said the same thing. We'll spend this extra money on education for our kids because mm. they, they understood that's yeah. the difference between their children living a different life to them. I, 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 read this, uh, I read this report a couple of years ago. I was probably five now, and it talked about uh, the two greatest things to, to, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was, it was, I remember what the two things were, but to solve the problems of the world were, were two things. Um, water quality, education for women right. yeah, in, the, in the developing world. Uh, and the more you think about that, it very much goes to what you just you just talked about there. I mean, um, education's the pathway to almost everything, isn't it? Absolutely. Mandela's got a great saying that that is the foundation of all lasting change is mm. education. Mm. Um, so I'm just gonna, I, I just want to stay there for a second, but also circle back to something we talked about earlier. Um, the reward you get for helping people. Yep, that, that intrinsic reward that you feel and that joy that you feel. There's an anecdote you tell about, you know, um, going to villages when you first started rolling out the, the program and, and the silos and having to uh, talk the local farmers into what you needed them to do with the silos and the food. Can you, can you talk about yeah. that for a second? Uh, at the time, we were trying to, this is um, when the farmers yeah, for many, many generations before, they, they basically just do what their father or mother did and they follow the same practices. So they knew because no one had ever introduced what's referred to as hermetic storage. That's where you can actually control the oxygen, carbon dioxide okay. exchange, but also keep insects out. Mm -hmm. So they knew that within a couple of weeks of bringing in the harvest, even though, for, and it is quite amazing. I'm, I'm not an entomologist, but gee, I learned a lot about insects. Yep. And it's amazing what can happen within 24 hours. A, a bag of maize or something that is in perfect condition one day, the next day can be absolutely just moving with yeah, insect right. life. Okay. So they knew within a very short period of time that um, that food will be infested um, and then it'll become inedible. So a lot of them just, just break down to being powder. So when we were first talking to them about storage, uh, ways for them that they could keep food from one harvest to the next, either to eat or to sell, yeah, they would smile because it's like me saying to you now, I'm going to float. Yeah, sure. I mean, it just defies all yeah. logic. Yeah. In their mind, food is not possible to be stored from mm. one harvest to the next. Mm -hmm. It's just not possible. Yep. And so when I was trying to get them, and I was trying to avoid what I've seen, the problem so many other projects where you give things away and it's never valued. So sure. I wanted yep. the farm, even though I heavily subsidised the cost of these storage units, I wanted them to pay. Mm. So to get them to pay for it was very, very hard because they didn't believe it would work. And then secondly, when I decided to um, let them borrow for a demonstration mm -hmm. um, one of these storage units, um, there's no way they were willing to put their crop into it because they just knew it was going to be a waste. Yeah, so to solve the problem, I said to them, I was going to buy their crop or a percentage of their crop. So now that's my um, mm -hmm. maize or whichever crop it was going into that storage unit. And they were happy to do that because then it became a bit of a joke. Okay, this, if this fool's silly yeah, enough sure. to put it yeah. in there, we'll put it in there. Yeah. But the deal was they were not allowed to open it for six months. Mm -hmm. And so... I knew because after doing it a few times, there was a pattern that happened every single time. When, when it 
came the day for us to return to that village and open up this storage unit, there was just like laughter. It was so like they'd be elbowing each other saying, this is going to be funny. <laughs> We're going to open up the, the, the bottom of this silo and it's just going to be like porridge. It's just going to yeah, flow sure. out either yeah. like dust mm -hmm. or sludge or something. But they knew what was going to happen before, I, you know, before it opened. So I always had a, a, either a videographer or a translator with me to capture it because mm -hmm. some of the best photos I have or footage I have of my time in Africa was that exact moment because what would happen is we would be about to open up the, the, the base of this unit, uh, unit. They'd elbow each other and there'd be this big smile at each other saying, here we go, watch this. And the, my favourite crop was to do it with was maize or mm -hmm. corn because yep. it's so golden yep. when it's harvested and then as it deteriorates, it becomes paler. Okay. And by the time it, uh, it becomes um, you know, just useless, it's like white. And so when they opened it, this golden corn would just flow out, like just like... And, That's an amazing And their visual, eye man. was like, what the? Yeah. And every time they would turn to each other and they'd, they'd mumble something in their local language and I'd say to the translator, what did they say just then? And almost every time it was a version of the exact same message, this will change our lives. That's amazing. That's wonderful. Because they immediately understood yeah. the massive implications of being able to control how and when you either eat or uh, yep. sell your stuff. So that was a, a wonderful experience. That, and then that just spread like everything. All of a sudden, it's like going from horse and cart to, you know, straight to the, the latest Ferrari. Yeah, it was sure. just like, yeah. what the? And um, yeah, and that made the whole thing a lot easier. Uh, it's, that, that's fantastic. And as you said, it's... But can I just use that yeah, example? Please. So how do I then go forward and accept any sort of praise acknowledgement award mm. for introducing that hermetic storage unit. Mm. You understand the sort of the anomaly I'm saying? Oh, no, I it's do. It's such I've, a no-brainer. Yeah. The world should be absolutely making mm. these things. Yeah, I can go, I can't go 10 kilometres through country Victoria and not see a silo. Mm. I can go thousands and thousands of kilometres in Africa and not see any sort of storage unit. And that's just one part of the... Of the just the standard farming practices that uh, that we do in the developed regions that they don't do. It must be, and whether you've, I'm sure you would have. It must be wonderful and exciting and glorious almost to think, as that expands out across the developing world. What does it look like in 50 years' time? What does it look like in 75 years, 100 time? It must be, and, and that's the planting the trees. Absolutely. I mean, that's when I go back to that earlier comment about people saying, you know, I don't understand how you can work for nothing. Mm. And that's what I'm saying. That if, if your only your sort of measure of, of payment is in financial terms, um, yeah, I, I don't think you see the full story. I get massive um, joy and satisfaction out of, you know, impacting positively on people's lives when I know that there, there is not thousands, there's hundreds of thousands of lives are improved um, because of uh, some of the ideas that we introduced. Mm. Uh, it, it really is wonderful to hear. 
I tell you what, I'm just going to, because I'm just very much mindful of your time. I know how busy you are at the moment, and we'll, and we'll talk about that in a second. Um, there was two more things I was hoping to touch on, if I can. So you, you're back spending a lot more time in Australia now than you had been yeah. for, for, for a long period of time. Um, you started your own enterprise a couple of years ago called Inspiring Leader. Can you tell us a little bit about Inspiring Leader? Well, again, it, it was a, not a planned evolution. It was just when I returned back to Australia, I had the choice. I can either resume the corporate work I was doing, I could take another corporate leadership role, um, but my heart remained still on, you know, on that charitable um, uh, journey. And, and I was looking at ways, and it, it, sometimes it sounds bad, but the intention's right, I'll, I'll say it anyway. I've, having worked with the, the poorest of the poor in the world, I found it hard to come back and dedicate my time full time to working with some of the local charities. Mm. But I was highly aware that that doesn't mean they don't need support. Mm. You know, they do wonderful work and they need support. I just didn't feel motivated to work full time. So I was trying to come up with a combination of well, what do I enjoy doing? Where can I you know, add value? And how can I help these local charities? And so I started to think about you know, the, one of the areas that I got the most satisfaction in Africa was on the education piece. And I thought, well, I've, I've had time you know, in leadership in privately held companies, publicly listed companies, and now as a director in, in the largest humanitarian um, organisation in the world, maybe there's some uh, wisdom and skills I can impart as a, an executive coach. Mm. And I remember at the time, <laughs> One of my business friends said to me, Simon, there's an old saying, a good player does not necessarily make a good coach. Sure. And I said, yeah, ouch, but that, that, that's right. <laughs> and so I then went down a path of finding, well, who is the best executive coach in the world and what do they do? And, how? and I reached out to a, a man that was widely regarded in many of the big you know, financial you know, magazines as the guru of all gurus. And he was good enough to not only give me some of his time, he then gave me all of the, the resources that he'd developed over a number of years because when I explained to him the model, whereas I wanted to take um, a coaching responsibilities where I took all the risk. At the end of the 10 or 12 month period, if the leadership team of the leader that I'm working with, if they don't view he or she as being significantly better, not by a subjective measure, but a really clear list of objective mm -hmm. um, measures, if they don't rate him or her at a much higher level, then I won't charge anything, you know, because I haven't done my job. But the catch was um, when that team said that the individual is, has improved in those behavioural areas um, significantly, and they have to write a big check. And it is a big check because mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure there was some pain along the way. They had to yep. value my time. When they have to write that big check, I wanted them to not make it out to me. I wanted them to choose a charity and give the money to that charity, mm. knowing full well that that was going to be quite jarring in terms of you know, these, these are very successful business leaders and, and everything about the work they do Rightly so, it's measured against you know what's what's the uh, associated costs and benefits, and uh, and frequently during the the coaching work that I do, the questions asked, I don't get it. If I don't improve, you don't get paid, and if I do improve, you don't get paid. <laughs> what, what I don't get it, mm. and so going back to 
uh, the, this coaching guru, when he was asking, he's saying, look, the first part I understand, there's other people in the world that, that take the risk and you don't pay if you mm -hmm. don't improve. But that's rare. But the second part of you doing the work and then giving, not even receiving the money, the 100% gets given away. So that's unusual. Yeah, sure. He said, if you're going to do that, I want to partner with you and help mm. you. So he was a wonderful help to me. And so the model now I have is there's, there's one level of, of the real high-flying CEOs mm. that, that pay a lot of money, work with them and their senior team, and then they pick a charity. There's another group at a different pricing level um, because remembering, I don't get anything for it. So mm. whether they pay a dollar or a hundred dollars, it doesn't matter to sure. me. Yep. I try and find a pain point. Mm -hmm. So if you're a, a starting a new business or you're a middle manager aspiring, your ability to pay is not as great as someone that's already an established CEO. So we, we ratchet that back to a much lower level. Mm. Um, but So there's enough for them to feel some pain. And then there's another group that don't pay anything. You're just mentoring and that. So. I find it's incredibly satisfying to have that win-win-win that, mm. that they improve as a, not just as a business person, because your behaviours at work don't automatically change when you walk in the door at home. That's right. So invariably, if you can improve them in the work environment, they're a better father, mother, community member. So that's an improvement. Obviously, their businesses improve if they're more effective as a leader. And then out to the side, there's some wonderful charities that are getting some fantastic support because of this work we're doing. So it was a, a model that evolved, but um, it, again, it's working very well. Uh, it is wonderful. I, I love the concept when I first spoke to you about it a couple of years ago. So it's, uh, it's really great to see it going so well. Um, the second thing I want to talk to you about, and, and probably the final thing, again, very mindful of your time, is um, when, you, when you, I think this was before you came back, um, but certainly you, you were back in Africa in November, I think. Uh, you're building a rescue centre, my, my phrasing, I'm not sure that's the, the right phrasing. So you, you've had that project that's been going on for a while. I'll get you to talk about that, but that's also um, in conjunction with One Heart Foundation now, yeah. and, and, and that's the gala ball you've got coming up. Yeah, so whilst the work I was doing in Africa was focused on food security, mm -hmm. um, I was const constantly aware of just the, the plight of the women in that region and some of the, the cultural behaviours that meant that young girls and women are just, by our terms, they're just very, very poorly treated. Yeah. And then I was aware of it at one level, but I never knew the details until it was actually the second week before I left Africa permanently. I was asked to go and meet this one lady and I said, no, <laughs> I know how it works. The minute I get introduced to somebody I'll get drawn into their story mm. and, uh, and I can't, I'm about to leave. Anyway, they were very persuasive. They asked me to meet this lady and her name was Consola. And it just, when I met her, just I can't remember being as emotionally impacted before that her story of what happened to her between the ages of seven and 12, how horrifically she was abused, how ultimately um, they tried to, to kill her and, and finish her and they, somehow she miraculously survived. And instead of being bitter about what happened to her, she made it her life mission to go and find other young girls suffering the same and to save them. And at the time she was talking to me, you can envisage the dirt floor, the corrugated walls, uh, corrugated metal walls, just abject po poverty. But she had 42 of these girls sitting around her feet. And I'm looking at them, and they're all different ages between, you know, say, 8 and 14. 
and she has absolutely no way of, of providing for them. Mm. She, you know, the, the food, the clothing, the, the, the health products and that. So I asked her, what can I do to help? And then for the next 12 months, um, we were just sending money. But fundamentally, all we were doing was keeping them alive. We yeah, weren't sure. improving their lives yep. at all. And so then I started thinking more and more about, you know, I have an ability to do something. I must do something. And in the same way as people said, you can do nothing about food loss. You can do nothing about poverty. Well, there's a whole lot of people who are saying, you can do nothing about this gender inequality. You can do nothing about it. It's been thousands of years of cultural practice. And I'm saying you might be right, but I don't agree. Mm. And I'm going to push to do something. So that started um, you know, in, uh, in 2020. We, we started to look at how can we do more and what it would look like. And then if all we do is rescue these children, but we don't do anything about the root cause. Yeah, sure. Why is this happening? Why are the men behaving this way? So how can we educate the young boys and the men to behave differently towards the women? And if they ever want to develop as a society, how they have to see that's not just something nice to do. They must do that. Mm. And then similarly, um, if we can do that in combination with rescuing and caring, and basically there's a process of they've got to be rehabilitated. These children have been terribly damaged, so mentally and physically, and then caring for them, educating them and then reintegrating them back to their villages. We're not adopting them. You know, we've got to work out so that when they are reintegrated, not only are they more empowered, but the community they're going back to, they are also more mm. educated about. So it's a massive challenge. Yep. Um, and every time I look up and I see, Jason, just how big an issue it is, and I'm only talking about this country, it's the same in all these other countries, you almost feel like giving up because you think it's too big. And I'm just mindful of that, that, you know, there's some great stories about even if you can only help one or 10 or 100, it, it means a lot to their changing their lives. Yes. So this initial rescue centre we're building is for 300 children. Mm. Um, and the goal is for, I don't have the um, ambition to go and you know, do it at the scale of what we were doing with the, the food security. Mm. but. I can see a way that if we can get this first model right, and it might be, might be the second or the third one that we get right, but we take a proven concept to the governments and we then talk to the governments, whether it's district and then national and then the neighbouring countries, if we can show them a model that works well about you know, education as well as the caring um, and then the, the, uh, the empowering piece, there's a chance that the governments we'll get behind it and then that's how we get to scale. So mm. the work with One Heart was a, was a great um, opportunity I saw where you had an existing not-for-profit organisation established and one thing I hate is waste. So I didn't see a need to go and replicate our own yes. one when um, I had uh, such a high regard for the, the founder and the organiser of mm. One Heart. So I approached them to fold our project under their umbrella mm -hmm. uh, and they really welcomed it and so we, uh, we set the task of raising $2 million for this first uh, village. Um, I managed to raise $1.2 over the last six, seven months. And now we've got this big gala dinner coming up um, next month to try and make up the, mm -hmm. the, the gap. Fantastic. It's, it's, uh, it, it's just a wonderful thing. And um, it's it's very interesting to me that you said you were two weeks away from leaving and yeah. someone said we'd really like you to meet Consola and uh, you were like, oh, and then you went and exactly what you said would happen has happened. Exactly. 
Yeah, but again, amazing. another so much good. pivot. You yeah. know, I could easily have come back and and maybe justifiably say I've done my piece. Now I can just you know just enjoy the the, the second half of my life back here mm. in corporate or wherever. But that now leads me down a path where I'm meeting with people, talking you know, on topics that I, I know nothing about, but I'm learning at such a, a rate. Um, and there's a Hopefully, we've already got a lot of children that are benefiting from what we're doing, but nowhere near the scale of what, what it might be. Uh, that must bring you joy. I mean, as challenging and as, and as, you know, as you said, sometimes you think about the scope of it and the scale of it and you, and you think, you know, regionally and then across the continent and then across the world, yeah. it must be daunting at times, but, but know that you can start making some inroads has to be, has to be a positive. Well, it is. I mean, again, there's a biblical um, quote that talks around, you know, for people whom much has been given, much is expected. Mm -hmm. And so I think that way. And even if you're not of a faith, I look at, I think I've been, you know, disproportionately blessed with a wide range of talents. Um, I could just use them to help me and my immediate family, or I could apply them more broadly. And you know, and, and as a, if I've got people who aren't necessarily of a faith, you just talk about, well, when you're in your 80s and you're looking back on everything you've achieved, what will you be most proud of? Mm. You know, will it be the assets that you leave your kids or will it be the investment you made in other people's lives? And mm. so, um, as I said, I, I never try and judge what others are doing, the same as I never want my children to feel bad about living a privileged life. Sure. I just want them to appreciate it mm. and to look for ways that they can share their good fortune with others. Mm. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful sentiment, Simon. Um, I just uh, wanted to make sure uh, the website for One Heart Foundation, if people want to uh, find out some more information about that mm. and the work that's doing and, and, and the money that you're raising, uh, the website's One Heart, uh, O-N-E-H-E-A-R-T dot foundation. Thanks, Jason. No problem at all. Um, Simon, uh, I don't think you need to thank me too much. I think it's very much me thanking you. I, I, I've really been looking forward to um, this conversation. One, because as you and I have said before, we could happily sit here and talk for hours on end. There seems to be no end to the things that we could talk about. Um, your story is an amazing one. You know, So many of our clients, either now or at some point in the future, so much of uh, you know the big decision that decision making they will face is you know thinking about retirement or stopping what they do today so I thought there was a real um, link to you know that big decision and that and that big change and that pivot um, but also I, I just really want the opportunity to try and share your story with as many people as, as we can because I've always been inspired about it uh, by it every time I talk to you and uh, you. I really like the idea of um, getting that to Thank some you. of our clients and people who listen can I just make one observation on your last comment? I, I find a lot of people feel that there's a, a, a point where they, they, they view that their life will get to a point they'll stop doing what they're doing and start doing something else. Mm. And we know that rarely happens. It's more looking for an opportunity while you're still doing what you're doing to also, and yeah, it's, it's that old saying, if you want something done, you give it to a busy person. Absolutely. And, and I, that's why I encourage people to just look within their communities. You don't have to stop what you're doing and start doing something else. There's so many opportunities where you can give back within your local community, whether it's your community of business associates, whether it's in your community of where you live. Um, yeah, this this mindset of saying, well, I'll keep doing this for a few years and then I'll do that mm. rarely happens. 
rarely happens, and I think that's something we've, we're, we're, yeah. we're very mindful of as well. So, um, Simon, again, thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it so much. I, I always love talking to you, and uh, good luck with whatever comes next. I, I'm very interested to see just how much difference you continue to make in the world. Thank you, Jase. Appreciate Thanks, your time. Cheers. Anyway.